Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We began a new series last week on the Ten Commandments. Of course, the Ten Commandments are given to us in Exodus chapter 20. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses repeats them to the children of Israel before they enter the Promised Land. And immediately afterwards in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read this in verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today, what words? The Ten Commandments shall be on your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. We're often appalled that the Ten Commandments are taken off the walls of our public schools. There's something much more important to God than that. God wants to know, are they written on your heart? And God wants to know, are your kids seeing them demonstrated in your lifestyle in such a way that they understand them clearly and want to embrace them themselves? And as we saw last week, the only way to write them onto your heart is to give your heart to Jesus. And when you do, you're described in an interesting way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 3. That's a chapter that contrasts the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And here's what he says about you in verse 3 of that chapter. You are a letter of Christ. It's an amazing description. You are a letter of Christ. The one who calls himself the Word is communicating through you. You are a letter of Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. If you're a believer, God's truth is written on your heart by the Spirit of God. And as we walk out God's principles, people see them in our lives. They read them in our lives, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And so as we go through these commandments, I want you to ask yourself if they're written on your heart. Can you name the first one? In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we read it in verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who delivered you. I'm the one who showed up big in your life. I'm the one who saved you. Now here's the commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now what's another god? Who's the competition to be God of your life? Well, a God is anything that takes the place in your life that God deserves. It's anything that dominates your life. Anything that controls your life. Anything that you are trusting in to save you. Trusting in to to deliver you. Anything that you worship. 
It can be your career. It can be another person. It can be your possessions, which is a prominent one today. It can be sports. It can be entertainment. Even good things can be God's when you give them first place in your life. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. So the first commandment is that you are to cling to and rely upon God alone. You are to let God be God. You're to put God first. He is to be top priority in your life. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I think we're given a commentary on the first commandment. And we see it in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now, this was probably the most often quoted verse among the people of Israel. In fact, they called it the Shema, which is the first word in the verse in the Hebrew. It means hear. It's the only verse that I can quote in Hebrew. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echai. You have to spit on that last word. It means hear Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And that is really synonymous with the first commandment because when he says the Lord is one, he's not simply saying that the Lord is one in quantity. He's saying that the Lord is one in quality. The Lord is one in priority. He is to be number one in your life. He is to be first in your life. And how do we express that? Here's the commentary. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. How do you show that the Lord is number one in your life? Does he say that you're supposed to believe that the Lord is one? No. Does he say that you're supposed to quote this verse twice a day like Orthodox Jews do? No. How do you show that the Lord is number one in your life? He says you shall love the Lord your God. That's the practical expression of the first commandment. You see, the real question is not what do you believe? The real question is who do you love? Now, most of us would say, well, I love the Lord. So the more accurate question is this. How much do you love the Lord? And he tells us we're to love the Lord three ways. Number one, we're to love him sincerely. You're to love him with all your heart. In Mark 7, 6, Jesus spoke of people who honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They talk the talk, but they don't love me with all their heart. And so God doesn't want pretense. He doesn't want feigned love. And dads, moms, 
if you have feigned love for the Lord, you're going to be sending a message to your kids. And it's going to be the wrong message. Because kids can spot a phony a mile away. If I want to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart, all I have to do is ask your kids. Because they know. They know how you live at home. They know how you walk it out. They know how you lie down and rise up. They know who you love most. A young Jewish boy lived in Germany in the early 1800s. His father was a successful merchant and led his family in the practice of their Jewish faith. They later moved to England, and the boy was surprised when they got to England that his father joined the Lutheran church. So he asked his father, why did you join the Lutheran church? And his father said, well, son, we're living in a different place now, and if you look around, there are a lot of Lutherans here. So I joined the Lutheran church to help my business. That boy who had a developing interest in religion lost it all. His name was Karl Marx, and he wrote the Communist Manifesto in which he said, religion is the opiate of the people. Kids can spot a phony, and so can God. He doesn't want you to write I love you on an etch-a-sketch. He doesn't care if you get it tattooed on your shoulder. He wants it written on your heart. And not half your heart, all your heart. We are to love God sincerely. Secondly, we're to love Him selflessly. He says, with all your soul. What is your soul? Well, that's the real you. That's the you behind the makeup. That's the you under the hairdo. That's the you behind the physique. It's the real you. And he is saying you are to love the Lord with your whole self, with your total self. You are to be totally given over to the Lord. You are to keep nothing back. There is to be no area of your life that is off limits to God. You are to love him with a selfless love. And then thirdly, we're to love him strongly, or a better word would be tirelessly, because he says you're to love him with all your might. Your heart and soul are inside things. Your might is expressed on the outside. And he's saying you're to love the Lord with every inch, every ounce, every muscle, every nerve, every sinew, every bit of your energy. Your physical strength, your intellectual strength, your emotional strength, your financial strength. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that is the practical expression of the first commandment because the first commandment is essentially this. God is to be first. And he is to have no competition. You say, well, Dan, how do I put God first? Well, I want to make this real practical today. So I've given you an acrostic in your notes of the word first. And I want to point us to five areas of our life 
where he should be first, if he's first. The F is for finances. Finances. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. God wants the first of your wealth. God wants to be first in your finances. And that's essential. I hear people say, well, I don't go to church because all they talk about is money. Have you read the Bible lately? It talks about money all the time. You know why? Because money matters. Because the way you use your money expresses what matters to you, what's number one to you, what the priorities are in your life. In fact, if I asked you today to get out your checkbook and hand it to the person in front of you, you wouldn't do it. But if you would, even though that person didn't know you, they could learn an awful lot about you by looking at your checkbook. Because what is on those little lines would tell them your priorities in life, would tell them what comes first in your life, what really matters to you. And that's why giving is so crucial. I don't care what you may say. If you're not giving, God is not first. If he's not first in your finances, he's not first in your life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2, it says we're to give on the first day of the week. Why did they give on the first day of the week? Because that's the day they gathered together to worship. And giving is an act of worship. When you give to the Lord, you're saying, God, you're number one in my life. I want you to be first in my finances, the very area that wants to be God of my life. I'm going to give it first to you because I want to declare you're first in my life and I want to worship you in my giving. Is he first in your finances? The I is for interests. What are your interests? What do you talk about the most? What do you get excited about? When, when the conversation goes to this subject, what is it that lights you up? What are your pastimes? What are your fun times? What are your amusements? What are your recreations? What are your hobbies? And now that you're thinking about them, let me ask you a question. Do those things detract you from your interest in God? Or do they enhance your interest in God? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You can eat to the glory of God. Amen? You can play golf to the glory of God. You can collect stamps to the glory of God. 
But you see, those same interests can become obsessions. And when they do, they become other gods. If God is going to be number one in your life, you must put him first in your interests. You know what Jesus' interest was? You know what his passion was? You know what lit him up in a conversation? He describes it for us in Luke chapter 15 where he gives us three parables back to back to back. All have the same message. He tells us about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And the message is that when you lose something really valuable, you drop everything else to go find that lost thing and bring it back. The woman who lost the coin swept her house until she found it, and then she rejoiced. The shepherd who counted his sheep and found out one was missing left the 99 and went to find that one lost sheep and rejoiced when he found it. The father who lost his son stood at the gate with a broken heart until he saw him come back, and then he rejoiced. What's the message of the parables? Well, he tells us there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus' passion is lost people. And he drops everything else to go and search and find lost people. And so I would say to you, if that's Jesus' passion, and he's first in your life, what should be your passion? Amidst all your interests, are you weaving in the primary interest and passion which is reaching lost people? It's fine to play golf, but are you praying for your golf buddies? And going with a passion to reach out to them and bring them to the Lord? Whatever your interests are, they can be opportunities for this overriding passion and interest which is reaching others for Jesus Christ. There's another way to look at this. Jesus shared a great verse in Matthew 13, 44 about passion. You might even miss it if you're reading the chapter, but it's worth marking. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy, for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Man's out in the field. Maybe he rented the field. It's not his field, but he's digging in the field for some reason. Maybe he's farming. He digs and he finds a treasure there. It's a treasure worth more than, far more than he owns. So he puts the treasure back in the ground and he covers it up and he goes and he sells his house and sells his car and sells everything he has. And he goes and he buys that field. I have a confession to make. One of my favorite TV shows is Storage Wars. I don't feel so bad. You've seen it? They, they, they auction off these abandoned storage lockers and 
And so they open the storage thing, and the guys can't cross the line. They can just look in at all the junk and try to decide if there's anything valuable in there. And then they auction it off, and then if they win it, they drag all the stuff out, and they hope to find some kind of treasure in that locker. Let's assume you could go early, and they let you in the locker, and you snuck back to the back of the locker, and you opened some suitcases back there and found out they were full of millions and millions of dollars. Hundreds of suitcases full of millions and millions of dollars. You come back out, what would you do? What would your passion be at that moment? I'm going to get that locker. If somebody came up to you and said, let's go to the mall, forget the mall. I want this locker. Let's go play golf. Forget golf. I want this locker. You would sell your house to buy that locker. You would give away everything you got to buy that locker. What's the point? There is unspeakable, unimaginable treasure hidden in Jesus. Some people see Jesus as just an ordinary field. But we know there is unspeakable treasure in Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 9.15. He is God's indescribable gift. If you would give everything you have for millions of millions of dollars that would only last during this lifetime, How much would you give for indescribable treasure found in Jesus Christ, which is eternal and unlimitless? Limitless. How much would you give? We'd sell everything. We'd sell everything. Your passion in life should be Jesus. Because in him are all the treasures for all eternity. And not only should that be your passion to know him more, but realizing that there's treasure enough for everyone else, your passion should be to go find those lost people and bring them to Jesus. That was his passion. Should be your passion. So what are your interests? The R is for relationships. We say that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. That's right. So the question is, is he first in your relationships? When you consider all of your relationships, which one is first? Well, it should be him. There's a sobering verse in Revelation 2.4 where Jesus is writing to the church at Ephesus and he says, I have this against you. You guys have done great. I mean, you're teaching the Bible. You're discovering false teachers. You're, you're doing everything right. But I have this one thing against you. You've left your first love. You've turned Christianity into a religion and you're cranking it out but you forgot about the relationship. You've left your first love.
when you consider your relationships, who's your first love? Who's on the top of the list? Jesus said you should love me so much that you actually hate everybody else. He didn't mean hate everybody else. What he meant was your love for me is to be so high that in, in comparison it looks like everybody else is way down here. I'm to be first and foremost in your relationships. And then after you love the Lord first, then you're to love your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids. Because the cool thing is that there's a paradox involved here. If I love Jesus most, I have more love to give to other people. That's the paradox. I give him everything and I have more than I had before to give to other people because his love fills me and pours out to others. When I proposed to my wife, I told her, I need to tell you something. You'll never be first in my life. Pretty romantic stuff, huh? You will never be You will never be the number one love of my life. And you know what she said to me? I don't want to be the number one love of your life. I want a man who loves Jesus first. Because she knew if I love the Lord first, I would love her more than I ever could apart from that. We're to love Jesus first, and then we're to love our wife and our family in ways that we are laying down our life in love the way Jesus did to us. And then when you think about your relationships, who are those that are your closest companions? The Bible says you're to have close companions who operate in a way like iron sharpens iron. You're to have companions who put the Lord first so that they are helping you maintain your priorities in your relationships. In fact, the Bible warns us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, bad company corrupts good character. There's a principle in life. You become like the people that you hang around. That's why I want to hang around Jesus. I want to become more like him. And I want my good friends to be people who love him as well so that they challenge me to keep him first. So Jesus, your family, your close friends, and then you need to look at other relationships. Are other relationships in your life what Jesus would want you to have? I mean, think about it. Do you have friends who are lost? Because Jesus was the friend of who? Friend of sinners. Do you have friends that are poor? that you're ministering to, caring for, giving to? came across a great verse in my Bible reading this week in Proverbs 19, 17. It says, when you give to the poor, you lend to God. I love that concept. When you give to the poor, you lend to God. If God came to you and said, can I borrow a little money, what would you say? Sure. Well, he is. And he says, give it to the poor and I'll pay you back. 
We just finished James. In James 1.27, it says, Pure religion is caring for orphans and widows. Providing for people who can never pay you back. They should be your friends. Jesus said in Matthew 25.36, When you visit prisoners, you're actually visiting me. And then to top it all off, Jesus said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Which according to Romans 5.10 is exactly who you were. You were an enemy of God when he befriended you and died for you and brought you to himself. So do you have friends who are lost, who are poor, who are fatherless, who are husbandless, who are prisoners, who are enemies. You see, when it comes to relationships, the people the world values as last, Jesus values as first. Is he first in your relationships? The S is for schedule, schedule. Ephesians 5.16 says you're to be making the most of your time and understanding what the will of the Lord is. How do you make the most of your time? Well, you put God first in your schedule. You sit down and you make a to-do list. And if you're like me, my to-do list is always too long. So then you take your to-do list to the Lord and say, what do you want me to do first? Help me prioritize the things on my schedule. I think we all complain about not having enough time. But the truth is, I have enough time to do my will. If I want to do something, I will find the time. Or I will make the time. So if you don't have enough time to do God's will, that tells me that you are doing other things that are not God's will. And I believe the key to this is to have a daily appointment with God. Doesn't really matter how long, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, doesn't matter when. You may be a morning person, you do it before work. You may be somebody who does it during your lunch break. You take an apple out to your car and get some time with the Lord. It may be in the evening for you when you put the kids to bed. You're able to get some time alone with God. If Jesus did that, we need to do that. Jesus had a house full of people wanting him to heal them. On one occasion, he went out and had some quiet time with the Father, and he came back and said, I'm going somewhere else. The Bible says that doesn't make sense. It's God's will. See, we need to spend time with God so that he shapes our schedule. And he becomes first in our time management. Is he first in your schedule? Or is your schedule filled with all those things that you want? The T is for troubles. Psalm 50.15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor 
me. When unexpected problems and pressures come into your life, who do you call? Who do you call? 911? You call your congressman? Who do you call? Ghostbusters? Sometimes we say, I guess all I can do now is pray. Prayer should not be your last resort. It should be your first priority. When you are slammed by your boss, when you are undercut by a competitor, when you go to the doctor and you get that shocking medical report, God wants you to run to him. He wants to be first in your good times and your bad times. Is he first in your troubles? You say, well, Dan, I've, I've gone through this list and I'm still not sure if he's first or not. Well, let me give you a simple way to tell if God is first in your life. When God is first in your life, you will stop worrying. When God is first, you will stop worrying. Worry is kind of like the warning light on your dashboard. I'm no mechanic, but I know when it comes on, there's a problem. When there's worry in your life, there's a problem. And you know what the problem is? God's not first. See, you worry when you are playing God. You worry when you are trying to run the universe. You worry when you are trusting in a little God to deliver you, to save you, to provide for you. See, when God is not first in my finances, I worry. When God is not first in my interests, I worry. When God is not first in my relationships, I worry. When God is not first in my schedule, I worry. When God is not first in my troubles, I worry. It was right in the middle of a sermon on worry that Jesus said this, but seek first, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to The antidote to worry is to put God first. And that's the first commandment. That you are to put him first. And there is to be no close second. You're to have no other gods before him. Because that's where it all starts. You know, the beauty of Jesus is that he's easy to love. I think about that verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, right in the middle of the Old Testament. And it must have been a challenge for the people of Israel. Because they thought about God and they thought, well, he comes on the mountain and there's fire and there's lightning and there's thunder and we all run away in fear. And we're supposed to love the Lord our God. I fear him, but I'm not sure I love him. And then we come to the New Testament. And Jesus shows up. 
God shows up in human flesh. What does he do? He lays down his life for you and me. He loves us enough to lay down his life, and the Bible says we love because he first loved us. He's easy to love. As we close our service today, we're going to take the bread and the cup the way Jesus told us to, to remember the cross. Remember that he laid down his life for you and me. And as we do, I'm going to ask you today to examine your heart and get honest with the Lord and say, Lord, I need to put you first in my life because you haven't been first. I've let you slip down to second or third on the list and you you don't live there. I'm going to make you first today. As you take the bread and the cup, I'm going to challenge you today to say, Lord, I love you with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my might. And I don't just want to say the words. I want it to be written on my heart and lived out through my life in such a way that my kids see that, my friends see that, my neighbors see that, that you're first, that you're the love of my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this bread and cup, this simple remembrance ceremony where we take bread and cup and remember your body and your blood. And Lord, as we do it today, we pray, as your word says, that we would examine our hearts, that we would be transparent before you. You can spot a phony a mile away. We don't want to be phony. We don't want to have feigned love or feigned obedience. Lord, I pray that you would take all of our heart, all of it, and you would allow us to be people who truly put you first, and that we express that through our love for you, all our heart and all our soul and all our life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you did for us what we can never do for ourselves. Father, I pray that our walk this week might show our appreciation to you as we honor you.